break 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 I'm Rania Kalik, and this is Dispatches. Uh, now, before we get started, I want to remind people to click on the subscribe button and the bell. And if you like our work here at Breakthrough News, you can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. And you can also throw money in the super chat. And if I get a chance to, I will read your comment out loud, assuming it's appropriate. All that said, I am very excited to be joined by Ali Abunima. He is the director of the Electronic Intifada and author of The Battle for Justice in Palestine. And we're going to be talking about Israel's ongoing assault on Palestine, the new Israeli government, crazy as ever, and regional developments following the war on Gaza. Ali, welcome. Thank you, Rania. It's a pleasure to be back with you. It's so good to have you on again. And, you know, you're recently back from Jordan, which is why I'm really looking forward to talking about developments in the region a bit more broadly. But first, I want to get to the new Israeli government. Um, Netanyahu's out, Naftali Bennett, who is notorious for his role in a massacre in southern Lebanon and has bragged about killing a lot of Arabs, as you've covered at the Electronic Intifada. He is now prime minister of Israel. And despite his far-right, eliminationist political views, U.S. liberals have celebrated him simply because he's not Netanyahu. Um, but this government is, of course, just as extremist, if not more extremist, than the previous one. And in fact, just to give people an idea of just how far to the right the Israeli political spectrum has gone, there is a Knesset member named Yitzhak Pindris, a member of the United Torah Judaism, which is an ultra-Orthodox ultra party, who openly on the Knesset floor, the parliament floor of the Israeli government, called for the murder of, quote, people who contribute to miscegenation, meaning mixed relationships. And he invoked a biblical story about the murder of a Jewish man and a non-Jewish woman while they were making love by lancing a spear through their engaged sexual organs. And he said this while looking at Mansour Abbas, who is a Palestinian citizen of Israel, who is a deputy minister in Naftali Bennett's coalition. I mean, you can imagine US media coverage if a Palestinian had said something along these lines, but of course this got no US media coverage, even though we fund these people. Um, but I bring this up, Ali, to ask you, is this new government different than the one before and what do you make of the inclusion of a Palestinian in Bennett's coalition, which did help make this coalition possible? And will this new government, this new ch this change, make any difference for Palestinians at all? Well, uh, the, what I had likened it to uh, is really, um, you know, it's like changing the executioner. And uh, does that matter for the person whose head is on the chopping block? Uh, not very much. Uh, you know, it really doesn't matter whose hands are holding the axe. The blade is still going to fall on your neck. And, but it may matter for the spectators. And, and we've seen that, uh, uh, you know, the U.S. liberals really care who's holding the axe uh, over the neck of Palestinians. Uh, European Union officials really care. Even Arab regimes care. But uh, it's of no consequence to Palestinians and in fact, we see that Israel is continuing its uh, ethnic cleansing uh, with great vigor, despite the fact that there are so-called 
left-wing ministers in this uh, government headed by um, you know the ultra-nationalist racist Naftali Bennett. The demolitions continue in uh, occupied East Jerusalem. The theft of land continues in the West Bank, where uh, we've seen uh, intensified settlement activity going on. Um, and, uh, of course, the siege of Gaza, and this government has already bombed Gaza. So there's no uh, difference for Palestinians. But because there are so-called left-wing parties in the government, it allows U.S. liberals um, to, to whitewash this government and to feel more comfortable uh, with uh, an apartheid regime, as long as it has people calling themselves leftists in it. Of course. And, you know, speaking of liberals, you know, you have expressed dissatisfaction with the squad's positions on Palestine, as well as people like Bernie Sanders' position. Can you elaborate a bit on what you find problematic about the positions staked out by even some who support BDS, like Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, and what you'd like to see from them? Yeah. Um, I mean, they're not all the same. Uh, you know, Ilhan Omar, I think, is sort of the you know, the the best of the bunch, to put it that way. She's been the most forthright in criticizing Israel. Um, and she has supported BDS. Uh, most recently, she tweeted her support for BDS after I had criticized her for her. Uh, you know, she, she mentioned BDS, I don't know, a year or two or years ago, but she's had been doing nothing to really promote this nonviolent movement and to to, to really... Uh, lift it up as a way that Americans can actually be involved in writing these uh, horrific injustices that are supported and sponsored by the United States government. Uh, but even she feels the need to, um, for example, she recently labeled Hamas a terrorist group. We know that terrorism is a the, the term terrorist is a completely political label, and it's used to delegitimize any form of resistance, uh, no matter how legitimate, to Israeli occupation and war crimes. So she she was adopting the framework of Israel and its lobby, which uh, views any Palestinian resistance a priori as terrorist, uh, and she she did that despite having you know also criticized. Uh, what Israel is doing. So, I, th you know, nobody is saying she should go out and uh, champion Hamas as a resistance movement. Right. Nobody's saying she should pick up an AK-47 and go and fight in Palestine. But at the very least, can she not echo uh, Israeli government uh, talking points and the demonization of resistance that uh, is often based in the same kind of racism and Islamophobia that she is... Uh, often a victim of. So uh, that's as far as Ilhan Omar is concerned. Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, he, there's so many problems with his positions. I mean, people are like, people like the fact that he mentions Palestine. They like the fact that he mentions Gaza from time to time. But his criticism of Israel is so circumscribed and limited. And we're in 2021, for heaven's sake. I mean, we need to be able to move beyond his very cautious and careful rhetoric. And it was really disturbing to see him tweeting 
uh, I don't remember the exact words, but I wrote an article about this, a tweet basically whitewashing the Naftali Bennett government, even before it took office and saying, you know, well, we don't know exactly what this government is going to be like, but it contains some you know, leftist, I can't remember, you know, I'm not quoting him exactly. I'm just giving you the the sense of the tweet. Uh, As I said, I I wrote about it in detail at the Electronic Intifada, but basically saying, you know, I I hope this is a government we can work with, as if simply removing Netanyahu uh, was all it took. Like, I liken it to this, uh, you know, this, this, the view that U.S. liberals have that all of America's problems started with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, and that all you needed to do is remove him from office and everything would go back to, you know, we could all go back to brunch. And that right. was the vibe that uh, Bernie Sanders was giving out about uh, Naftali Bennett and his advisor, even more so his advisor, Matt Duss, his main foreign policy advisor, who I think writes many of his statements or or policies on this issue. Matt Duss said, said, me and my Israeli colleagues are celebrating uh, that Netanyahu is out of office. I responded to him, I said, Palestinians Palestinians have nothing to celebrate uh, with this. So that kind of whitewashing. And And then also Bernie Sanders doesn't support BDS. I mean, BDS, we have to stress, people talk about BDS, boycott, divestment, and sanctions, as if it's this thing that, you know, is so difficult to do and so politically risky. It's the minimum position that anyone should have. It's really the minimum. What Palestinians are asking, like I said, Palestinians aren't telling Bernie Sanders or Ilhan Omar or anyone else to pick up a gun and go and fight for Palestine. All, All Palestinians are saying is, please don't help our oppressors. Please don't collaborate with them. Please don't be their accomplices. Just just do nothing. Do nothing. Don't help them. That That's the minimum position that BDS asks for. Of course, people are welcome to do more. People are welcome to go out and protest in solidarity. We've seen these incredible, incredibly inspiring and effective block the boat protests where activists and union members at ports uh, around the world, really, uh, but including here in the United States, have gotten together and port workers have refused to cross picket lines, uh, calling on them not to unload Israeli ships. That's fantastic. But the, the minimum thing we're asking people to do is don't help the uh, oppression of Palestinians. And for Bernie Sanders, that's too much. He's against BDS for some reason. He's against not helping Israel kill Palestinians. Let me ask you something. Let me ask you something, though. And this is not me saying this. I just want to give you the opportunity in more than just a tweet to respond to the kind of liberal and, you know, progressive response towards you sometimes when you go after these people. Yeah. Um, when you when you go after Democrats and you're very harsh about it. Um, and you know, I think that's okay. I think that we need that, right? You I I see you as creating space when you do that. Um, but there are people who are a part of the Palestine solidarity movement who get very upset. You know, you're being mean to AOC, you're being mean to Ilhan Omar. It's really hard for them in the positions that they're in for their careers. It's very difficult for for these politicians to even support BDS. They support BDS. What more do you want from them? They're already in a tough spot. How do you respond to that reaction uh, to your criticisms of these Democrats? 
Well, the first thing to say is it uh, fires me up to criticize them more. So uh, <laughs> anyone who throws that criticism, those criticisms at me will find that they only encourage me. Mm. Uh, so, so I welcome it because it just like it makes me want to do it more. But um, I mean, there's a couple of things to say. First of all, they're not doing us a favor. They're elected officials. They're supposed to represent people, uh, and you, they're supposed. We're supposed to be their bosses as citizens, as voters, as taxpayers, as residents of the United States. We're not supposed to be grateful to them all the time. We're supposed to tell them what to do. And when they do good, th you know, and, and politicians are transactional, you know, they're out there raising money, hustling for votes, doing what they do because they want support. They're transactional. They're not our uh, uh, best friends. They're not our aunties. They're not our sisters. They're not our brothers, unless they're literally your sister or, or brother, which, which you know, uh, given America's love of political dynasties, uh, you know, sometimes they literally are. Like, look at the Chris Cuomo and Andrew Cuomo. So unless you're Chris Cuomo, okay, they're not your brother or your auntie or your friend or whatever. So you have to uh, praise them when they say something good or do something good, and I do that all the time. Uh, and you have to be very clear when they're wrong. You have mm -hmm. to correct them immediately, not cut them any slack because they're politicians. And... The other side is doing that. I mean, you know, you can be an American politician who is, you know, licking the boots of the Israel lobby for your entire career, and you say one thing out of line, they will come down on you, That's harshly right. and publicly. Mm -hmm. And I always think we need to learn those lessons from the right and from the Zionists, uh, which is that you actually have to hold politicians accountable and not pander to them and not protect them and not defend them. Because if people are simply circling the wagons around them and fending off criticism, where is the pressure going to come from for change? What, 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 the right is attacking them for not being right-wing enough, and then many on the so-called left are protecting them when they shift to the right. So where is the actual pressure for them to move to the left, to move to better positions, to not just move to better positions, but simply to keep their promises, to keep the promises they made, and people are unwilling to hold them to the promises they made, then I, I, if you're not willing to do that, then it's absolutely hopeless to expect any kind of change from within American politics. I think it's already probably hopeless, but... Mm -hmm. It's definitely not going to happen if you don't push for change. The, the other thing, you, you, you use the term creating space, and I think that's exactly what it is. I don't mind if people get mad at me for criticizing them or for pushing them. That's, that's totally fine because uh, you don't change the discourse. You don't change the terms of the discussion and the debate if you only say the things that people are already comfortable hearing. You have to say the things people are uncomfortable hearing. One very, uh, uh, you know, uh, relevant example is that, uh, you know, a few years ago when I wrote a book uh, 
uh, talking about a one-state solution, everyone thought, well, most people told me that, oh, at best, this is utopian, but it's it's probably just crazy. Today, this is mainstream thinking. Right. So That's a very good point. Yeah. I so, remember that. I remember that. Ali's so nuts. What's he thinking? Like Right. Right. So then, that's yeah. that's how you change the terms of the discussion. If we only say the things people are already happy hearing and comfortable hearing, then I don't think anything will change. No, that's an excellent point. And um, I just want to note that there we did tell somebody in the super chat who I guess read my mind, because my next question is actually related to this, Hussein Brazil said the PA became an extension of the Israeli occupation forces. I just want to remind people real quick, you can throw money in the super chat and I'll try to read your comment. That said, um, Ali, you know, uh, I'm sure you're aware you've been covering it. Palestinian activist Nitar Bennett was beaten to death by the Palestinian Authority security forces mm. who he had been criticizing. And of course, Israel's propaganda apparatus has tried to use this to deflect from Israeli violence against Palestinians. But in so many ways, this is Israeli violence against Palestinians. So can you explain to our listeners and viewers what the Palestinian Authority actually is in terms of who it serves. Right. The, and the, the uh, killing of Nizar Banat uh, uh, a week ago in, in, uh, in Hebron by Palestinian Authority thugs, trained and funded by the United States and the European Union, uh, is an absolutely horrific crime and highlights the role of the Palestinian Authority from its very creation in the mid-1990s after the signing of the Oslo Accords, which was, you know, baked into it. The Palestinian Authority was designed and created to be an auxiliary police force for Israel. And the logic expressed by Israeli leaders at that time openly and clearly was that uh, why should we have Israeli soldiers patrolling the streets and alleys of Palestinian refugee camps in the West Bank and Gaza when we can get Palestinians to do it for us? Mm-hmm. And this is, is actually a very, is or was a very common colonial strategy. The British Empire always used so-called native auxiliaries to police the people in its empire. They didn't have enough British soldiers to, you know, uh, police half the world. So you had to have local native auxiliaries uh, that you would um, co-opt uh, into into becoming your police force. The South African apartheid regime, of course, did this for many years. Ultimately, it created the Bantustans, which were these fake independent black states, which nobody in the world recognized. Uh, but they had presidents and they had armies and they had police that were all uh, ultimately under the control of the white, white supremacist regime in order to police black people on behalf of the white supremacist government. And of course, when South Africa was uh, liberated uh, from apartheid, uh, the uh, so-called Bantustans and their governments were all entirely abolished. And really, the Palestinian Authority is modeled on the Bantustans more or less explicitly. Uh, I remember in in my book, One Country, which is behind me there, uh, I have a quote from uh, an Israeli official. Uh, This was in the 1980s. I believe it was the uh, deputy mayor of Jerusalem, Meron Benvenisti, who told the story uh, about uh, about how the, the how actually the South Africans uh, and uh, Israelis saw each other as uh, um, you know 
facing the same quote-unquote problem of how to control a hostile native uh, indigenous population. And the Israelis actually saw the banter stands as a potential solution. Uh, and so there is evidence that, that it directly influenced their thinking. And that's what the Palestinian Authority has always been. That's why, why I mean, why would the United States government fund it and train it? Why would the European Union fund it and train it if its job was to protect Palestinians against Israel? The job of the Palestinian Authority is to protect Israel and its settlers against Palestinians. And that is um, written into the Oslo Accords, as I said. I'll give you an example. In the, in the small areas of the West Bank where the Palestinian Authority has uh, control, uh, they're, only, they're not allowed, you know, a settler could walk up to a Palestinian in, the, in those areas and shoot a Palestinian dead. And the Palestinian Authority has no power to arrest the settler. There you the, go. <laughs> yeah, the Palestinian Authority only has jurisdiction over Palestinians. So it's there to arrest Palestinians on behalf of Israel, not to protect Palestinians from Israel. And we've seen that in... Uh, of course, the horrific murder of Nizar uh, Banat is not the first such crime, although it's it's uh, one of the most uh, blatant we've seen recently. Most of this collaboration is done behind the scenes under the banner of what's called security coordination. And what this usually involves is the Palestinian Authority informing on Palestinians or even questioning Palestinians on behalf of Israel and then passing the information on to Israel. There have been many documented cases where people are brought in for questioning by the Palestinian Authority, and then later Israel arrests them, and they find when they're being interrogated that the Israelis are in possession of information that they could only have gotten from the Palestinian Authority. And in the case of Nazar Banat, who was murdered so brutally by the American and European Union-funded Palestinian Authority, um, he was actually arrested from, by the Palestinian Authority from an area of Hebron which is under full Israeli military control, which means that the Palestinian Authority could only have entered his home and arrested him uh, in coordination and with the permission of the Israelis. Right. And, um, you know, there's another person in the super chat who has asked a really good question, which I'm going to get to soon. I don't want to quite talk about this yet because there's a couple other things I want to ask you about first, Ali. But he was asking, well, first of all, where can people find the four part band Israel lobby documentary? That's important. You can find it at the Electronic Intifada YouTube page, which you should absolutely check out. They have an excellent video podcast they also host there. Um, they also asked some questions about Middle Eastern countries and support for Palestine. And I'm actually going get, to get to that shortly, but I just wanted to give that, him a shout out because I said I would for Super Chatters. Um, that said, Ali, I wanted to move the conversation to the issue of Silouan, which is in the news right now. The ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from the occupied East Jerusalem neighborhoods like Silouan, Sheikh Jarrah, that continues with uh, Palestinians in Silouan specifically being forced to demolish their own homes and businesses in recent days. Last month, the war on Gaza was sparked by ethnic cleansing in Sheikh Jarrah. So can you update people on the ongoing displacement in these neighborhoods? And why do you think they've fallen out of the headlines? Is it because Netanyahu is no longer prime minister? 
Yeah, well, they were only in the headlines in the first place because of the resistance, the Palestinian mm-hmm. resistance across the country, which gives the lie to, I mean, when I say across the country, I mean throughout historic Palestine. Uh, that included Palestinians in Israel, Palestinians in the West Bank, and of course, Palestinians in Gaza, um, which now we see, you know, the demolitions are ongoing day by day. The, uh, what I want to give people is kind of a big picture of, of, of where, where, how to understand this. The demolitions in Silwan and Sheikh Jarrah, these are neighborhoods that are uh, close to the old city of Jerusalem, outside the walls of the old city. But Israel's destruction of homes and displacement of families is part of a long-term plan, a decades-long plan, to transform Jerusalem from a Palestinian, Arab, Muslim, Christian city into an exclusively Jewish city. And this began, of course, in 1948 with the Israeli occupation of West Jerusalem, which involved the wholesale ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from West Jerusalem, tens of thousands of Palestinians, and the theft and looting of their homes. Uh, Literally, the organized looting of their homes, artwork, books, furniture, and of course, the homes themselves. If you go to West Jerusalem now, so-called Jewish West Jerusalem, the most expensive and valuable homes there uh, are homes stolen from Palestinian families in 1948. So the ethnic cleansing of West Jerusalem was completed in 1948. Then in 1967, Israel occupied East Jerusalem and immediately began ethnic cleansing in East Jerusalem. The first act which happened within days of the occupation was the bulldozing of the uh, Moroccan quarter. This is an ancient neighborhood, was an ancient neighborhood in Jerusalem that the Israelis simply bulldozed. Uh, Buildings that were hundreds of years old, including a a mosque and religious school that was centuries old uh, and displaced the people there in order to create the so-called Western Wall Plaza. So this is part of the the Judaization of Jerusalem that has continued. And in Silwan, uh, Israeli settler groups backed by the Israeli government and uh, supported uh, by a lot of so-called charitable, tax-exempt charitable donations from the United States are uh, establishing um, new settlements and a theme park called the City of David which is about fabricating uh, an exclusively Jewish history for Jerusalem and erasing uh, its Palestinian, Arab, Muslim, and Christian character. So it's part of a long-term strategy, house by house, street by street, uh, using Israel's racist and illegal laws to try to give these, uh, this ethnic cleansing, a, a veneer of legality and a veneer of process, which is simply for form. It's simply to cover up that this is just outright theft of people's homes and, and property uh, in order to continue this Judaization uh, of Jerusalem and this falsification of its history and identity as an exclusively Jewish city. Well said. Um, People don't get to hear that whole history very often. And, you know, you mentioned the issue of resistance. 
in terms of why things, why Sheikh Jarrah ended up in the headlines. So I want to talk about the right to resist because I've noticed that, you know, liberals tend to extend their sympathy more to the largely defenseless Palestinians in occupied East Jerusalem and the occupied West Bank who've been disarmed. They extend their sympathy more to them than they're willing to for Palestinians in Gaza who continue to resist militarily. Now, I don't want to diminish the damage that Israel inflicts on Gaza as a result of this armed resistance, or for that matter, the bravery of those who do continue to resist and protest in places like Jerusalem and the West Bank. However, the fact that there's a military resistance in Gaza is, as we've seen from the temporary halt to the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, is a deterrence to Israel and even forced the Israelis um, to you know, temporarily halt their ethnic cleansing. So can you explain as you see it, the right of Palestinians as an occupied people to resist their oppression militarily and what that means? And why do you think it makes people in the West so uncomfortable? Hmm. There's so many good questions packed into that. I want to uh, address a couple of aspects. One is, um, of course, the Palestinians on the ground in Jerusalem are resisting with all the means at their disposal and doing so uh, really heroically. And we've seen uh, real significant victories in recent weeks and months. Uh, first of all, on May 10th, uh, Palestinian resistance in Jerusalem blocked Israel's so-called March of Flags, this march by fanatical settlers chanting death to the Arabs through the old city of Jerusalem. Israel had to cancel it. Um, then, uh, of course, and, that, uh, and then, of course, uh, we saw the resistance from Gaza, uh, the firing of rockets towards Jerusalem to defend Jerusalem from uh, Israel's attacks. And then after the war was uh, over, the, the Gaza aspect of the, the, the escalation was over. Uh, Israel rescheduled the so-called flag march, but once again, due to the resistance in Jerusalem, even though this very ugly, savage display of, of settlers, including kids, it was really shocking to watch. You know, you wonder how Israelis are teaching their children to hate like this, but uh, mobs of settlers, including uh, children, um, uh, marching and, and dancing in Jerusalem and chanting death to the Arabs, may your village burn, uh, Muhammad is dead. All of this was well documented and, and filmed. Uh, and and uh, that's what the flag march is. That's what Israeli nationalism is. That's what Israeli uh, pride and national identity is. Even Yair Lapid, the so-called uh, centrist uh, alternate prime minister, uh, defended the flag march and said it had to go go ahead and that it was right for uh, occupation authorities to approve it. So the resistance in Jerusalem is very much alive. Your question is why uh, uh, would some Westerners and NGO types, I've noticed a lot of the NGO types on Twitter uh, support it. I think one reason is that um, of course, all Israeli ethnic cleansing is criminal and wrong, but a lot of liberals and, and you know, Western governments and the EU and, and the NGO industry see uh, the ethnic cleansing in Silwan and 
Sheikh Jarrah and other parts of Jerusalem is interfering with their, with their delusional uh, clinging to the so-called two-state solution. Mm. So that's why the European Union will support Israel's massacre of Palestinians in Gaza while also pretending to oppose the ethnic mm-hmm. cleansing in Jerusalem because they see the massacre in Gaza as helping to wipe out resistance, uh, but they also see Israel's ethnic cleansing in Jerusalem as harming the two-state solution, which they see as the best. You know, the, the EU and the and liberals are like your best friend who knows better for you what's good for you. Right. You know, so they're, they're like your friend who's always telling you, you know, uh, you should do this and you should do that. It would be better for you if you if you stop seeing those friends and you start seeing these friends or, or you shouldn't date that person or you shouldn't go out with. You know, if you if you have a, a friend like that, you, you'd, you'd know what I what I mean. Uh, and the Europeans and, and liberals are like that. They support Israel as a racist apartheid state. But they think the best way for Israel to survive as a racist apartheid state is in the context of a two-state solution. So they'll say, you know, Israel is acting against its own best interests by undermining a two-state solution. Uh, you know, the best way to maintain a, a racist Jewish supremacist state is through uh, racial segregation in a two-state solution. They don't put it in those terms, but that's what they mean. So that's where some of the support for uh, East Jerusalem comes from. Uh, and and I, I have to be clear, I'm not saying people should not support Palestinians in East Jerusalem. They absolutely should. Uh, and their struggle there against Israeli ethnic cleansing is legitimate. I'm talking about why some Western um, you know, governments and NGOs and authorities seemingly are more concerned about East Jerusalem than the horrific situation in Gaza under 14 years of Israeli blockade and and uh, three now 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 it's four uh, horrific Israeli wars just in the last decade, and so we should be clear. We said this during the war, and let's take the opportunity to say it again. Palestinians have a right to resistance and self-defense. They have a right to receive assistance for their resistance and self-defense. That's a right that is, of course, not exclusive to Palestinians, but is a a well-recognized right in international law for occupied and colonized peoples, and it's one that has been affirmed by the UN General Assembly in many, many, uh, uh, on many occasions, and in fact, is one, you know, since we live in a racist, white supremacist world where Europeans always know best, uh, well, let's, let's consult the Constitution of Sweden, uh, which, you know, is consistently the top-ranked country uh, for everything. Uh, you know, uh, the Constitution of Sweden uh, requires public officials, in the case that Sweden is invaded and militarily occupied, the Constitution of Sweden requires public officials to assist the resistance and defense of the country. And that's stated in the Swedish constitution. So uh, I, I believe, I'm very egalitarian, I believe that what's good for Swedes is good for Palestinians. And if, that if Swedes <laughs> have a right to resist, Palestinians do too. That sounds like an excellent bumper sticker. Yeah, no, I know. I'm very egalitarian. I don't want to deprive people in Sweden of, <laughs> of any right. of the rights that Palestinians have. 
and Palestinians have a right to resist occupation, and therefore I uphold and support the Swedish right to resistance that is enshrined in the country's constitution. So uh, military resistance is a right, um, and of course, the violence, you know, uh, the, 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 the spin and the media narrative uh, is always that the violence comes from the oppressed and that, mm-hmm. that Israel is always reacting to Palestinian violence and Israel is defending itself when we know that the, the, rea- the reality is the opposite. The violence begins with occupation. It begins with colonization. It begins with domination. Uh, so... Palestinian, any Palestinian violence is already a response to Israeli violence, and not just to Israeli violence, but to, to, to American violence and European violence and Arab regime violence, because those are all supporting Israel's occupation and colonization. So the violence, so uh, as Nelson Mandela said, uh, as Nelson Mandela wrote in his, in his memoir, The Long Walk to Freedom, it is the oppressor who decides what form the, uh, the, the, the struggle of the oppressed will take. If the mm-hmm. oppressor uses violence, which of course by definition the oppressor does, then the oppressed are uh, compelled to respond with violence. And, right. you know, in, in the case of Palestine, unfortunately, we have a sort of natural experiment of two approaches because you can find any um, number of... Um, uh, you know, liberal uh, commentators, you know, your Thomas Friedman's or your Nick Kristoff's. I don't know if anyone still reads them, but uh, <laughs> I know they still exist. Only people who hate themselves. Right. So, so you know, they will always say, oh, the Palestinians should engage in nonviolence and they should, uh, they should uh, you know, uh, engage in dialogue and peace talks and cooperation with Israel. And that's the path to build confidence. And if Palestinians engage in violence, it simply turns people off and it, it costs them support and it gives Israel an excuse to at- attack them and kill them. Well, as I say, we have two... A, a sort of a, a natural experiment where in the West Bank we have uh, an authority, a so-called Palestinian authority, that c- completely collaborates with the occupation, that uh, co- has completely surrendered to the occupation, whose officers uh, run and hide when Israeli forces come into a village to uh, arrest Palestinians or attack them. Uh, a Palestinian authority that, that is regularly praised by Israeli officials and American officials for how much it's doing to help Israel to uh, crack down on Palestinian resistance. Has that stopped Israeli land theft and colonization? Has that stopped uh, pa- uh, Palestinian homes being demolished by Israel? Has that stopped Israel from stealing Palestinian water? Has that stopped settlers from uh, destroying Palestinian trees uh, and attacking Palestinian uh, Palestinians and their, their property? Of course not. Uh, it has left Palestinians completely defenseless. Whereas uh, the military resistance in Gaza mm-hmm. uh, is also costly. Surrender is costly, as the West Bank shows, Uh, When I say surrender, I'm talking about the Palestinian Authority, not the Palestinian people there. Surrender is very costly, 
the, the Palestinian Authority's surrender has undoubtedly cost Palestinians vast tracts of lost land to mm -hmm. Israeli settlement. Surrender is all, uh, sorry, resistance is also costly. But uh, the, the choice to resist is a choice that an oppressed, only an oppressed people can make. It's right. not one that me in Chicago uh, can make on behalf of Palestinians. But as I think I said before uh, in, in your show, when an oppressed people, an occupied people, takes the collective decision to resist and liberate itself, there's no going back on that. And peoples in that situation are, have shown themselves willing to make enormous, unimaginable sacrifices. And that was the case when Algeria liberated itself from French savagery and barbarism. That was the case in South Africa when uh, uh, black people liberated themselves from uh, white supremacist savagery and barbarism that was funded and armed by the United States, the Europeans, and Israel. Uh, as we know, I, I just mentioned as an aside, Israel was the biggest armorer of apartheid South Africa when it was yes. finally placed under sanctions. Uh, so the, the people of Vietnam paid an enormous price to liberate themselves from the American invasion of their country, uh, and the, the American attempt to impose uh, an undemocratic uh, regime on them. So, so, so what I'm saying is that, that, uh, that, that fake comparison that, oh, well, you know, Palestinians are just giving Israel an excuse to bomb them. Palestinians are not the ones who decide what Israel does. They're, they're not in control of Israel. And it's blaming the victim to say that Palestinian resistance is giving Israel as an, uh, an excuse to kill Palestinians. They don't need an excuse. They don't well, need an excuse. Uh, it's, it's, li it's like the analogy, which I, I you know, I, I, I uh, you know, that we hear often of, of, of blaming women for mm -hmm. uh, sexual violence and attacks that say, oh, well, she shouldn't have dressed like that or she shouldn't have gone out. Uh, you know, so saying that Palestinians, by defending themselves, by defending their rights, defending their existence and their survival, are actually responsible for Israel uh, uh, annihilating entire families in their homes, is really appalling. And people should stop saying it. I've heard that a lot just in the last few weeks. So the right to resist is, is there. It's up to Palestinians to decide when and how to exercise it. And uh, politicians like Ilhan Omar and others should stop demonizing Palestinian resistance as terrorism. It's such a it's such a Western um, conversation as well. You know, you were I, I mentioned at the beginning that you were in Jordan during the Israeli assault on Gaza. Um, and so I want to broaden this conversation out a little bit uh, to, to the region. And I want to start with Jordan since you were there. Um, you know, you were president Jordan when Jordanian Palestinian protesters reached the fence at the border with historic Palestine. Do you see the regional Palestinian reaction as a new development and reunification of this divided community? Because oftentimes when we in the U.S. Uh, or in the West talk about Palestine, it's always, you know, West Bank, Gaza, like no one ever even talks about 48 Palestine. But certainly Palestinians that live in 
refugee camps or in other countries across the region are often left out of that conversation. So was this a kind of reunification of this cause, do you feel like, this time around? Definitely. I mean, the 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 I think what really scared Israel and its Western and Arab supporters uh, it was the simultaneous uh, uprising uh, within uh, so-called Israel, within the 1948 areas, and the resistance from Gaza and across the West Bank. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we've also talked about how Israel's strategy for controlling an indigenous majority, because Palestinians are the, the, the numeric majority in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel combined. Uh, Israel's strategy for controlling um, an indigenous majority whom it's depriving of all their rights can only be divide and rule, can only be fragmentation. And that's what the uh, apartheid regime in South Africa did. That's what it did with the the Bantustans, it was an effort to, to divide and rule, to fragment, to create different interest groups, to create different little territorial fiefdoms where they could set up rival, uh, you know, uh, leaders. And, and, and that's what Israel uh, tries to do. So the, the mass, the uprising and resistance across historic Palestine was really a significant moment. Uh, and the general strike that happened on May 18th, which was observed widely across historic Palestine, uh, in the West Bank, in Israel and Gaza, uh, I think were really inspiring, not to, to Palestinians within Palestine, but also to people across the region and a reminder that Palestine is a single cause, that, that, uh, that it's not just the West Bank and Gaza, but that, that uh, Israel's regime of occupation, apartheid, settler colonialism and terrorism uh, exists from the river to the sea, and that therefore liberation, freedom, equality, justice need to be from the river to the sea. And uh, we need to be very clear about that, because I think there's an effort now to try and demonize the phrase from the river to the sea. That, right. like, that's like saying that if, if uh, during the civil rights era, someone said there need to be civil rights from the, from, uh, uh, um, from the Atlantic to the Pacific, that that's like calling for the destruction of the United States. Right. Uh, that's literally know, the equivalent. That's literally yeah, that's the equivalent. Equi that's what we're saying. From the river to the sea, Palestine must be free. Everyone must be free. Everyone must be equal. It's totally wrong and immoral to think that Palestine, that only part of historic Palestine should be free and part of it should be under racism and oppression and apartheid. So if you're against the phrase from the river to the sea, you're against freedom and in support of oppression. So, yeah. the, so the, that's a little bit of a tangent to get back to the region. Um, <laughs> well, but, I do want to ask you, I do want to ask you with respect to Jordan, um, because I, I wonder if it's in any way similar to Lebanon or not, um, where I am right now. Um, at a more popular level, how do you assess the Jordanian reaction to Hamas's intervention in Jerusalem, knowing that Iran is Hamas's key backer? Do you have a sense of how the Jordanian people, I know you can't speak for all of them, but how Jordanians who support Palestine deal with that reality? Is it even a part of the conversation? And you know, I'll just say like in Lebanon, there are a lot of people who support Palestinians, support the Palestinian cause. They say they support Palestinian resistance, but then there's this huge contradiction because a segment of those people absolutely despise Iran. 
despise Hezbollah for that matter. And so, yeah, it is this contradiction where it's like, okay, you support Hamas's right to resist, but you despise and want the destruction of the most probably powerful entity that supports them. So yeah, I'm curious how that conversation or if that conversation even plays out in Jordan. Well, Jordan and Lebanon are different because mm. Jordan doesn't have the same kind of social uh, and sectarian uh, uh, lines of division that Lebanon does, where Iran is seen as, you know, being uh, on the, I don't know if, if side is the right term, of one segment <laughs> of the population and right. another segment sees it as, as, as hostile. That doesn't exist in Jordan. So I've never encountered personally, obviously I can't speak for everyone in Jordan, but I can say I've never encountered in the wild uh, like anti-Iran sentiment in Jordan. It's, it's just not an issue. Not that's, an elite, that's an elite discourse in Jordan. That's an elite discourse in the sense that, uh, you know, I would say that, and it's not even a very prominent one, but it's, it's a discourse among... Uh, people who whose interest is in maintaining the alignment of Jordan with the United States and the West and Israel and the mm. uh, various whichever Gulf regime Jordan is 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 in with at any given moment because that right. that can change um, but uh, you know and and so that regional alliance you know to the extent that Jordan is part of that regional anti-iran uh, US alliance uh, then then some in the Jordanian elite adopt that discourse about Iran. But I haven't seen it on a popular level. And certainly, uh, I've never heard anyone saying, um, you know, oh, uh, the Palestinian resistance should refuse support from uh, Iran. I, I, I suspect, I, I can't, again, I can't speak for, for, for anyone but myself. Most people would say, well, you know, Palestinians have a right to to receive support from wherever they can get it, and and this is who's willing to help them. You know, if others were willing to help them, that would be great. Uh, but we don't see that. We don't right. see uh, you know other countries in the region uh, or beyond the region uh, providing Palestinians with say precision guidance systems so that they could precisely target Israeli military bases. Uh, for example. Um, so what I also, you know, obviously my views, are imp- my, my, my views are impressionistic, but I can say that it was, we were talking before the show, uh, that this was the first time I had uh, been in Jordan uh, during one of Israel's horrific attacks on, on Gaza, one of its prolonged wars on Gaza, and I think for all the others, I was in the U.S. And, mm. you know, as it is during these uh, uh, periods, I'm doing a lot of media work. I'm doing a lot of writing at the Electronic Intifada. We're working 24-7 to publish and to do what we can. So it's obviously I'm not going to compare our experience to the one um, uh, of people in Gaza living under the bombs. But for us as journalists... And for us as feeling human beings, it's a very intense experience. And I have to say, being in Jordan for it felt very different because Mm -hmm. unlike in the United States, you're in a country among a population where everybody uh, 
supports the resistance. Everybody right. wants to see Palestinians uh, be able to defend themselves and to resist the horrible crimes that Israel is um, committing. So simply that atmosphere, you feel it uh, intensely in Jordan. And I, I didn't hear a single person say, oh, but Iran. That, that that's, just, uh, that's, very, that's very refreshing. And, and, and I you know, wish that the, was, yeah. you, are, you also have to be uh, also wary of opinion polls uh, mm. in the region. You know, you, you always have to take polls anywhere with a pinch of salt. But in the last few years, uh, I haven't seen a recent one, but I remember a few years ago at the height of sort of the U.S.-led demonization campaign against Iran. Um, the, you know, w when there was this intense effort by the U.S. and its media and its think tanks to foment sectarianism across the region, to kind of isolate Iran as Shia and bad, and to create kind of a right. Sunni-Arab alliance, uh, I, th I can't remember whether it was the Pew Research. I think it was the Pew Research Centers. One of these uh, American think tanks did the polls in, you know, in a bunch of countries across the region. And what was notable, because they asked questions about this, was in Jordan, and I think it was true in Palestine as well. Lebanon, it was more mixed, I remember, because of the, the different situation there. But in Jordan, Palestine... The number of people who saw Iran as a threat was minimal. I mean, it was it was it was tiny, and you know, people saw Israel as the overwhelming threat, and the United States. So, what I'm saying is that the effort to they demonize have good instincts. they have good instincts. Well, it's that people can't can't be fooled. You know, they 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 can see what's happening, and you can yeah. you know, some people will be some people will be taken in by the sectarian and religious uh, efforts to demonize Iran. But I would say that as a widespread effort to demonize Iran, across, uh, at least from my experience and observations, that has failed. You know, um, and this is this is related. I, I, I kind of asked you a similar question to this the last time I had you on this program, but I think it's a good time to revisit it given that there was this war on Gaza. And we did see during this war, you know, we tried to ignore it and we did, and I think it's good to ignore it because it's not important when Gaza's being bombed, but now that, you know, that has taken a temporary reprieve, there was this kind of line drawn in the sand, right? Between people who are pro-Palestine, but still pro-imperialism and people who are pro-Palestine and anti-imperialism. And I would put people like you and I on that side, but I, I, you know, I don't want to talk about those people necessarily. What I want to ask you is, why do you think it's important to incorporate anti-imperialism into our analysis of Palestine? Because as we've talked about before, there is this stream of liberalism that is becoming increasingly vocal on the issue of Palestine, but remain silent or even just openly imperialist on the rest of the region, whether we're talking about you know, being pro-Palestine, but supporting the U.S. attempt to regime change in Syria and Libya, for example. So how do we deal with that? What's your take on the best way to to analyze and go about pushing back on that? Yeah, and, and I would add to that that there is this stream of liberalism that is, you know, representing itself as pro-Palestine, but as you noted earlier, anti-resistance. Mm. So, you know, they, what they want to do is, I don't know... Uh, like, uh, mm, I mean, it, it's like 
they want to present nice Palestinians who are just doing nice, nice things and struggling in a very uh, telegenic and photogenic way, not those, you know, uh, scary Palestinians who fight back with, uh, you know, missiles and guns. Uh, and they want to also make those dis- those those uh, distinctions. And we saw some of those uh, sort of uh, think tanky voices, uh, you know, at the beginning of the Israeli attack on Gaza, spouting off and saying, oh, you know, uh, the Palestinians uh, uh, in Jerusalem were doing just fine uh, before before Hamas got involved. But uh, the reaction from Palestinians on the ground across Palestine was very different. It was Mm -hmm. very welcoming and supportive of the resistance and proud that Palestinians in Gaza, despite 14 years of a brutal blockade, were able to mount such uh, 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 a resistance that was able to impose a uh, a fairly severe cost on Israel in terms of shutting down its airport for more than a week, in terms mm-hmm. of, um, you know, shutting down the Israeli economy uh, and um, and really forcing Israel to consider uh, the cost of its actions uh, against Palestinians. So that, that, that liberal stream exists. Um, and I think we have to be wary because we get this now all the time. I get it, and I know other Palestinians get it too. Like, um, we are constantly told and lectured. You know, if some liberal politician says something mildly supportive of Palestinians, and you say, well, this doesn't go far enough or it's wrong for these reasons, you're immediately attacked and told, just shut up, you know, just be grateful, basically. Mm-hmm. Be grateful for whatever crumbs. So there's an effort to sanitize the issue of Palestine, to make it acceptable to the mainstream by um, removing the, the uh, core demands of Palestinians from view. And mm-hmm. we mustn't allow that to happen. And... Um, the issue about uh, imperialism and anti-imperialism, I mean, you, you can't, there will be no liberation of Palestine in an imperial context. Right. Uh, we're not going to have a free Palestine if the United States is the hegemon, he- hegemon an imperial power, uh, backing dictatorships and puppet governments across the region. I mean, what we're learning is that you can't have liberation in one country, in a sense. You have to have liberation across the region, and the obstacle to liberation in the region is U.S. imperialism. It's not China. It's not Iran. It's U.S. imperialism. It's U.S. imperialism. It's not Russia. With its, its one little military base in the region, not Russia, it's the United States. You know, there's an effort by liberals to say, oh, well, we're against imperialism, but we're against all imperialism. You <laughs> know, know all, all, imp- all imperialisms matter. We're against U.S. imperialism, but we're also against Chinese imperialism. We're against Russian imperialism. We're against um, Djibouti imperialism. We're against Seychelles imperialism. We're against Gabon imperialism. As if, you know, as if the United States is just, what you know, one of uh, many other countries and is not the, the uh, and has not been, the imperial hegemon in the region since 1945, since the British and French, uh, you know, uh, 
lost their imperial uh, control in the region. So w- that's what we have to understand, that, that the forces of oppression in the region, whether it's the Israeli apartheid regime, whether it's the dictatorships across the Arabian Peninsula, whether it's the Sisi dictatorship, uh, are, are backed by the United States. And that's not to say that the governments not backed by the United States are wonderful, uh, beautiful uh, governments uh, that uh, you know would win awards along with Sweden. That's not the point. The point is it's up to it, it's those countries and their people that have the right to determine their future, their leadership, and they cannot do that. No country can, uh, can uh, exercise its free will uh, and its sovereign will in the context of U.S. imperialism and regime change wars and proxy wars, which have been devastating the region for decades. And speaking of the region, and I just have a couple more questions I want to ask you before I let you go here. And I do appreciate all of your time and your perspective, as does our audience. Um, one person uh, threw money in the super chat and, and and said, keep up the great work. And also mentioned, I love Nora Barrows Friedman's voice at EI. Nora Barrows Friedman uh, is at, at Electronic Intifada and she hosts the Electronic Intifada podcast, which again, everybody should go check out. Um, and then another person asked about... Oh, did I do that? I'm sorry if I put that on the screen. I didn't mean to. No, it was good. I like. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not supposed I'm, to be doing that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm like a boomer when it comes to technology. That's like an insult to boomers, actually, because I'm even worse than that. Anyway, somebody asked about the media, um, and I appreciate that you asked that. I will get back to the media. That's actually going to be my last question for Ali. But first, I wanted to note that, um, you know, in some ways, Ali, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I kind of feel like this war on Gaza uh, as devastating as it was, it also kind of started off what I feel like is a new era in the region, or at least it ended a certain era. In in, in my view, it ended the Arab Spring in a way. Like is it, it started off the post-Arab Spring era, um, where this, this war on Gaza kind of put a nail in the coffin on that period. And what I mean by that is in the sense of the imperialist attempt to divide the resistance in the region by sect. Um, and I feel like that was a failure ultimately because, you know, and I'm, what I'm talking about is, you know, back when Syria, when the uprising in Syria started, Hamas withdrew from the Syria in the beginning of the Arab Spring. And there was a bit of a, an unofficial break in its relationships with the resistance acti- axis, kind of, which also, you know, included Iran, Hezbollah and others. But now there are signs that they, you know, may have this rapprochement with the Syrians and they've openly acknowledged the important Iranian role in supporting their military in Gaza. And then, of course, his, you know, Hezbollah's Hassan Nasrallah and Hamas's Ismail Haniyeh met in Beirut this week, which I thought it was kind of funny. It happened as Biden was meeting with the Israeli president. Um, but I don't know. Would you agree with that assessment? Do you think there's a significance in that? And on top of that, I would add, and I'm, I'm shoving a bunch of questions together because we're nearing the end. But from a regional perspective, as you kind of see the resistance, um, the fractures and the resistance fading, you do, you know, do you think the normalization camp has been delegitimized by this war? Because before the war on Gaza, the Emiratis and the Bahrainis, they were boasting about having direct flights to Tel Aviv. The Emiratis were hosting, you know, hundreds of thousands of Israeli tourists, and they still are. Um, but in the end, it was the Qataris who were the ones who helped end the war 
and are going to help Gazans recover. And of course, it was the Iranians that supported the resistance in Gaza. So, you know, I guess to put those two questions together, do you think there's a significance in the sort of fading fracture points in the resistance regionally? And on top of that, do you believe that the normalization camp has been delegitimized? Yeah, I mean, historically, uh, colonial and imperial powers have always used sectarianism uh, as a way to divide and rule. The British did that in India. They did it across the region. The French did it in Lebanon and Syria. So that has a long history. Um, I, I would date the recent uh, effort at a sort of escalating this sectarianism to Israel's 2006 defeat in Lebanon, the uh, really humiliating and costly defeat that the Lebanese resistance inflicted on Israel in 2006, elevated the status of Hezbollah like never before into a pan-Arab uh, resistance movement that was just you know popular across the region. And it was in that context and also the context of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, which was still in its earliest years, that there was an intense uh, propaganda effort from the United States and from the Israel lobby. I remember Dennis Ross and Martin Indyk and people like that uh, pushing this line, saying, you know, the real fracture in the region is not between Israel and Arabs, it's between Sunni and Shia. And so it was a propaganda effort to turn Hezbollah, particularly aimed at Hezbollah, to turn Hezbollah from what was widely seen as a, um, uh, a, a pan-Arab resistance movement uh, and to turn it into, in the eyes of people, into a foreign Iranian sectarian religious movement. And right. that propaganda was very intense. And of course, it, 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 it lingers or is even thriving in Lebanon among certain segments. But I think across the region, it, it, has, it has largely faded. I mean, that's my impression. I, 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 you know, I, I'm just giving you my impressionistic view. But uh, so the fracture was always more in the desire of the West and the empire than in reality. I mentioned those polls that came out in those years in the context of that propaganda campaign, at least in, in some target countries, showed it wasn't working. In Jordan, it didn't work. Uh, I, again, it worked among some perhaps small segment and some elite segment who, who parrot the imperial line that, oh, Iran is a bigger threat than Israel. I, you know, there were a few, maybe a few <laughs> elite voices in Jordan who said that, but that was never a popular view. So I think that that propaganda has faded. Mm -hmm. And as far as the, um, the, uh, I think people, you know, things are being laid bare in, in their reality that uh, people are defending themselves, whether it's in Lebanon, whether it's in Palestine, whether it's in Yemen, mm -hmm. whether it's in Iraq. You know, you can, you can call, you know, the, Joe Biden and the media can demonize so-called Iranian-backed uh, militias as much as they want. But these are the, uh, these are the militias that saved Iraq from ISIS. They're the militias that saved Iraq from, from that stopped the takeover of, uh, of, of much of Iraq uh, by ISIS. 
And, and that's why, you know, people are not going to ultimately buy into the, uh, you know, the propaganda from uh, Washington and from, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Gulf think tanks in Washington and Israel lobby think tanks in Washington, because I think people's experience and interests uh, and, and mere survival, uh, you know, dictates a different point of view. A hundred percent. That was very well laid out, Ali. And then the, one of the, what did I wanted to end on, and I think that you'll be, um, you're the perfect person to ask this question to, is are you enthusiastic by the slight change? I don't want to get too excited by it. So it's a very small change, but there is a, a tiny little change in the discourse around Palestine in the Western press. Um, you know, you've got Human Rights Watch using the word apartheid. And you had the New York Times publishing these photos of children killed in Gaza. Uh, you had the Nakba being spoken about in the pages of the New York Times. Does this matter? Does this shift matter? Yes, it matters, but it's not an end in itself. In mm -hmm. other words, it's like it's not our goal to get pictures of the children murdered by Israel in the New York Times. Our goal right. is to stop Israel murdering children. Uh, it's not our goal to have people talking about the Nakba. It's our goal to end the Nakba and for people in Palestine to be uh, free and to be able to live normally. It's not our goal to have a change in discourse in the United States. It's our goal to have a change in reality in Palestine. So these things are signposts of change, certainly of generational change, massive generational change. And, and massive change within uh, large segments of the U.S. population, particularly, uh, you know, people who vote Democratic, are now uh, becoming majority pro-Palestinian and not pro-Israel. Uh, you know, really a sea change that's happening. So the, those things, I think it's important to remember they're, they're not an end in themselves, and so we shouldn't pat ourselves on the back too much and say, oh, look, wow, the New York Times published pictures of dead Palestinian children. It should make us angry that for so many decades, the New York Times has been whitewashing and supporting and justifying Israel's crimes. And now they're publishing these pictures and, and, and you know, as if that's something I'm not, I'm not going to be grateful for that. Nonetheless, I think we should say that whatever change has taken place, whether we consider it small or large, is because people at the grassroots have been pushing. Mm -hmm. They have refused to take yes for an answer. They have kept saying the unpopular things. They have kept pushing people beyond their comfort zone. So my, my simple answer is, you want to celebrate those changes, that's great. We have to have victories. We have to see sometimes the positive side of things. But they should spur us to keep pushing more. Don't take yes for an answer. Don't sit, rest on our laurels and say, okay, we've done enough. We haven't done enough. We mm -hmm. shouldn't be grateful for crumbs. We need to keep pushing and we need to keep our eyes on the prize. Well said. Um, I keep saying that, but when you speak, Ali, it's just, uh, I love hearing you talk. I could hear you go talk forever. Um, I want to thank you for joining me. I, uh, and before, actually, before I close, I want to remind people who are watching that this program on Breakthrough News, Rania Kalik Dispatches, uh, we always post them on 
anywhere you get podcasts on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts under Rania Kalik Dispatches. Just look that up. Um, Ali Abunima, director of the Electronic Intifada and author of The Battle for Justice in Palestine. Thank you so much. Can you remind people very quickly where to follow your work and the excellent journalism that your outlet is producing? Thank you. I'm so proud of all our journalists and writers at the Electronic Intifada, our podcasters, our videographers, our photographers, especially those in Gaza. They do such amazing work. And uh, you can find all our work at electronicintifada.net. You can find us on Twitter at Intifada. Of course, as you mentioned, we have a, a YouTube channel with some incredible uh, uh, videos uh, and, of course, the podcast. So uh, I hope we'll find many of your viewers there and uh, that many people also uh, continue to watch your show and, and, and see it grow, Rania. You're also doing a really great job and, ha and, and having conversations that uh, I think a lot of people uh, would prefer not be had, but I think it's just so important. Well, thank you so much, Ali. I really appreciate you coming on, and I hope to have you back on again soon as a regular of Dispatches. With pleasure. <laughs>